Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, so grateful you're here. So grateful we can spend this time together as we do dive into a brand new series, but it's kind of a brand new series. And the reason I say it's kind of a brand new series is because the content that we're going to be touching on today and over the next few weeks is brand new. But it's not really the idea because this series is kind of not really a new series. It's kind of season two of the series we've just finished. And I say that because that's really, really, really important because the stuff that we're going to talk about in the series, the content that we're going to hit in the series, I don't believe it can be properly understood. I don't believe it can be properly assimilated. I don't believe it can be properly presented without the content of the series we've just done called The God Jesus Knows. So if you're here for the first time, we're so glad you're here, but you might be walking in on season two. And you know how that is when you start watching a show on season two, you're like, why is that guy doing that? Really, what's the point? Everybody else is like, oh my gosh, did you see what just happened? And they're like, why? Because there's some important information that lays the foundation for where we're going. And so that's kind of like what we're doing, especially for today's content. I can't emphasize enough, today's content especially, and as we move forward, it needs the foundation of the last few weeks of, of the series we've just done. So if you haven't watched it, if you haven't heard it, I would strongly encourage you, especially if you bump into today's content and you're like, oh great, why did I come today? <laughs> if you bump into that, I would strongly encourage you to please go listen in to the stuff that we've talked about in the first part of this series, the first season of the series, especially part five, which kind of is a bridge between the two. But we're gonna dive into some really important content today that needs the foundation of the series we've just done called The God Jesus Knows, because uh, today we're starting the series, The God Jesus Knows and the Problem of Sin. The God Jesus knows and the problem of sin. And you can't get into the problem of sin unless you understand the, the picture of the God Jesus knows and who he expressed. During the series, The God Jesus Knows, we asked a really, really important question that I think helps us. If you're trying to navigate Christianity, if you're trying to understand God, if you're trying to understand the Bible, this question is so important. If you're trying to understand some of the things that sort of public Christianity throws out at people and it lands weird on you and it's like, oh my gosh, is that really what Christianity is about? out, Ugh. like that's happened to me, that's happened to so many of us. If you bump into any of those things, here's a question we've been asking. The question is this, is my understanding of God consistent with the God Jesus knows? Because throughout history, people have come up with ideas about who God is. We've bumped into ideas. People have become famous on certain ideas. People have stood on platforms and said, this is what God is like. And all these different ideas are all over the place. And so this question, is this idea consistent with the God Jesus knows is such an important question. And here's why, because, because God decided to take the, the confusion and take the assumption and take the, the, the guesswork out of trying to understand him. And Christianity teaches that God entered into our world. He understood that there's these questions. Who's God? So God sort of entered into our world in the form of Jesus Christ. And he showed up and he claimed not just to have the best explanation of God, but to be the best explanation of God. So whenever we bump into the ideas or confusion or, or questions or things that make you go, oh my gosh, really? Ask the question, is this idea consistent with the God that Jesus knows. And what we've discovered in the first part of the series, The God Jesus Knows, is that God, <laughs> the way that Jesus describes him is, is so beautiful, it's so incredible. He describes him as a good 
God, that everything he does comes from this heart, this desire to be good, that he's not just a desire, but that he is good, that he's good, that he's generous, that he's trustworthy, and that he is unconditionally loving. And so today, when we tackle something that we usually don't like to talk about, because there's always parts like that, right? When we tackle this thing that we don't want to talk about, it is so necessary to understand the God Jesus knows, because that gives us a a different understanding, a different perspective of what we're gonna look at today. And that's also why we're only tackling what we're talking about today, because it has to stand on a foundation of God being good, God being trustworthy, God being generous, and God being unconditionally loving. If it doesn't stand on that foundation, we will then once again create some misunderstanding of God again. So it's really, really important. So again, If you haven't listened to the first part of the series, uh, first season of the series, I would really encourage you to at least go check it out. Go listen because it creates a foundation for this. Which brings us to, and, and, and what we did again in that series is it said that he's good, that he's unconditionally loving, that he's generous, and that he's trustworthy. So that brings us to what we're looking at today. If God is so good, if he is trustworthy, if he is generous, and if he is unconditionally loving, then why does he have a problem with sin? If he's so good, if he unconditionally loves, if he's trustworthy, if he's generous, why does he have a problem with sin? And how does the problem of sin fit in with all of that? What does God do about sin? What does God do about wrongdoing? Because we know that there is wrongdoing. We look around, it's not hard to see wrongdoing in our world. And we even know that there's wrongdoing and and, and mistakes and mess and sin even in our own hearts. It's not hard to go through too many days before you bump into it in your own heart. We know it's there, we know we do it. So what about sin? What about the problem of sin? How does the God Jesus knows deal? with the problem of sin. So that's what we're gonna look at over the next few weeks, and we're gonna look at it in a lot of important details and a lot of different angles, and it's so important to understand this because sometimes not understanding this part kind of makes Christianity all fuzzy and all weird, but if we can understand the way Jesus described this stuff, it helps us navigate this so much better. So here's what I wanna try and do today. I know it's not always possible, but what I wanna try and do today is I wanna try and go on a logical journey through the problem of sin and how God navigates that. And I know you can't really talk about this big, ugly, religious Bible word sin without emotion coming into it. I get that. But today, and there's even emotion for me, but as we go through this, I wanna try and go on a logical journey through how God navigates the problem of sin and the punishment that sort of comes with that. How do we navigate that? Let me start by getting us on the same page by by saying this statement. And this is what I believe, and I think you'll probably go with it. I think this is a logical statement. If God truly is God, if God is God, and I don't know where you're at with God, and if you're here at a place where you're going, "Ah, I don't really know if he really exists, someone just invited me and I came with them to kind of appease them. If you're there, I get it, I get it. That makes sense, you know, there's some people who we struggle and depending on your religious journey, depending on what you've experienced so far, I totally get it. So, So I'm glad you're here and that's fine, but if he is God, if God is God, then God must, I think, by necessity, be perfect, righteous, and an impartial judge. If God is God, 
I think he must, by necessity, be a perfect, righteous, and impartial judge, meaning that he should perfectly be able to know what's right and wrong. If God didn't know that, I'd be like, I don't know if I want that God. So I think God must be able to perfectly know what's right and wrong. He should be able to perfectly see what's right and wrong, understand it, and then impartially make decisions about what's right and wrong and about right and wrong actions. I think if God is God, he must be able to do that. If he really is God, he must by necessity be perfect, righteous, and an impartial judge. If he wasn't, I mean, if he didn't rule and judge impartially, I think we could and we probably would never trust him. If he didn't judge impartially, if he didn't see right and wrong, I don't think we could trust him. The truth is, as much as we want God to be loving and kind and forgiving to us, as much as we want a God who kind of ignores our wrongdoings and ignores the stuff you did last time and thinking, as much as we want that God for us, as much as we want a God who ignores our own injustices, our own kind of missteps, as much as we want a God who ignores that, as much as we want a God who's sort of permissive and has an anything goes attitude for us, we want that for us, I know, I do too. We all, as much as we want that, the reality is, I don't think we want that for our world. I don't think we want that. I mean, we're in the middle of watching a war happen. We're in the middle of seeing so many injustices and what has the global reaction and response been? Almost universally, everybody's condemning what's happening right now. Why, because we want justice. We don't want injustice. We want leaders who won't just turn a blind eye. And if they turn a blind eye and go, it's okay, do whatever you want, take whatever you want, kill whoever you want, it's okay. We're like, no. We don't want that. And as such, I believe that kind of transposes into God as well. We don't want a God who doesn't care about injustice and wrongdoing. As much as we want that for us, God, I know, we want God, a God who can clearly see what's right and wrong and impartially judge what's right and wrong. That's what we want. James Bryan Smith, the author of the book that inspired the series, says this, Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not act adversely to evil in his his world be morally perfect? Um, Surely not. And the creator of the universe, uh, sorry, and if the creator of the universe were this indifferent, would the universe be fair? One of the things we humans cannot escape is our longing for fairness and justice. I do not want a universe in which there is no justice, no right and wrong. I do not want a God who's indifferent to moral evil. In other words, if God didn't care about evil, bad or wrong or injustice, I don't think we would call him a good God if he didn't care about that. J.I. Packer asks an insightful question about this. He says, would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be good and admirable? I don't think so. Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. The reality is that there is something in us that wants God to care about right and wrong. We need God to care 
about right and wrong. If God were to turn a blind eye to sin and wrong and to bad people who did bad things, we would lose respect for him. Think about how we think about leaders who turn a blind eye to injustice and the wrong around them. We're like, what are you doing? You can't do, we lose respect for human leaders. And I think if God were to turn a blind eye, we would lose respect for him. In other words, for us to trust God, I believe he must be a just God. For us to trust God, he must be a just God. He must be perfect, righteous, and an impartial judge. We need God to look at the evil in our world and see it and judge it. We need him to have perfect, impartial knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. We need inside of us as people, there's something in us that we need him to be a judge and to be able to judge. Think about our world and our legal system. If we didn't have laws and systems and right and wrong and consequences for right and wrong and a law that that holds lawbreakers accountable, society would fall apart. We need impartial judges. And if God is God, I believe we need him to be an impartial judge. (laughs) But that creates a problem for us, right? Because if he's impartial, impartiality can't just go one direction. We want it to, I want it to. But if he's impartial, then he must be impartial, right? And impartial means he treats everyone the same. So if God is impartial with others, then he will have to judge us impartially as well. And as good as we believe we are, in comparison to a perfect and holy God, the reality is none of us measure up. We're not even close. So if he judges everyone impartially, the reality is that all of us are in trouble. All of us fall short of his perfection. That's what Christianity teaches. That's what Jesus teaches. All of us fall short of that because all of us, and we know this about ourselves if we think about it and if we take time, all of us to some degree or another are driven by this broken human nature that we have. All of us, I don't know if you've said this, I know many of us have, we go, I'm, hey, I'm just human, I'm not perfect. And we use that to say, hey, don't judge me and yet we want God to judge imperfection. We want God to be just. We want him to to judge impartially the wrong and the good and the bad in this world. And then we say, but I'm not perfect. I'm only human. It doesn't fit properly. We want him to be just, impartial, and then we recognize we're not. And we fall under that justice as well. The reality is we all know we've got this broken human nature. We all know that there's something in us that makes it easy to do the wrong thing. Ah, what is that? Why is it easy to do the wrong thing? Why is it hard to do the right thing? Why do we live that? Why do we have that? We know if we ask ourselves a question, most of our life is lived from a self-centered, self-gratifying place. We know that. We have a broken human nature. And Jesus and Christianity calls it, that Bible word, sin. We have a sin problem. And if God is just which we need him and want him to be. But if he's just, he must be just with us as well. If he's just, which we want, 
then he must be just with us as well. But we don't like that. That's scary. That's like, ah, uh, ah, uh, no, please. And so what we often do is we want him to judge all the wrong and the bad, and we want him to judge the bad people. And, and when he judges the wrong and the bad in us, we're going, no, 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 no. Here's my, here's why. Now be impartial towards them. You know, Hitler and all those violent criminals, be impartial to them, but here's why. This is where I'm at. And so we want impartiality there, but when it becomes fully impartial, it's like, oh, that's a problem that we have. We go, wait, 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 I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as them. He deserves judgment, of course. And if God doesn't judge him, then I will be upset. I won't trust God because he's not just. So I'll be upset with that, but I don't want you to judge me. And so what we do is we kind of look around us to find the people who are worse than us. It's oftentimes a big Christian problem. We look around and find the people worse than us and we build a case that we're good and we don't deserve judgment from a God, even though he's perfect and righteous and holy and impartial. We don't want that. And sometimes we believe we kind of stand taller than other people. And yes, those people are worse and yes, they deserve judgment and yes, yeah, yeah, if he doesn't judge them, then I'll be upset because he's not being a just God because I wonder if I trust God, he has to be a just God, but I'll show you why I. They need it, but, 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 but maybe not me. I'm above them, I'm better than them. But here's the thing, I'm telling you, if we are seeing ourselves as better than anyone else on this planet, we're seeing wrongly. Our perspective is wrong. We are not seeing with impartiality. If we feel like we don't deserve the righteous judgment from a perfect, righteous, and holy, and impartial God, we are either elevating our own righteousness or diminishing God's if we think we don't deserve righteousness. Let me give you a silly illustration on this as to how I think we see ourselves sometimes and I think how God sees us. If we think we're better than other people, then let's put that in a, a picture of how tall we are. You know, I'm six foot, so you know, that's, that's how tall I am. But, but some of us feel like, no, I'm better than other people, and so we look down on other people. Perhaps you are better than everyone around you. Perhaps you're a 30-foot tall person, and you walk around looking down on everybody, and no one can reach the moral heights that you have. And when you look around, you go, I don't need judgment. Everybody else does, clearly, but I don't. It's because I'm seeing it through my eyes. If we were to see that through God's eyes, it might look a little different because I don't know if you've ever looked at a satellite photo. How does a tall person look from the, you know, the International Space Station? Here's a picture of Chattanooga from a satellite. Can you point out the tall person? He's really tall. Look how tall he is. You can't even point out really how tall the aquarium is or the bridges or the tallest building in Chattanooga. We can't point that out. You know why? because it's from a different perspective. Everybody's the same height. Everybody's there. Nobody's above. We're all in the same boat. From the perspective of a perfect, righteous, and impartial God, the reality is that none of us measure up. He's perfect. And any degree of imperfection makes us fall short. And then it's not even like we have one or two degrees of imperfection. We know ourselves we fall far short of a perfect God. And as such, all of us are lacking. All of us have sinned. And all of us rightly deserve impartial judgment from a perfect, impartial God which is pretty bad news. 
aren't you glad you came to church today? But you may say to me, Justin, I thought that you said the first part. I'm, I'm gonna go look at the first season. <laughs> Let's go watch the first season. Because the first season you told me that God's love is unconditional. And now you're bringing this whole thing, judge, and impartial. How does that work? You told me that God's love is unconditional and that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Didn't you say that? Yes. In fact, for the first five parts of the series, we delved so deep into the reality that Jesus made it very, very clear that God is good, that everything he does comes from his goodness because he's a good God, that he's trustworthy, we can trust him, that he has unconditional love for us. He is unconditionally loving. That's what we said. And that means that his conditions, his love has no conditions, none. And no matter what we've done, no matter what we struggle with, no matter what questions we have, no matter what we may still do, his love has no conditions. The fact that Jesus died on the cross for us means sin no longer has to keep us from him. And Jesus is even called a friend of sinners. That's what we said in the first part. And we said that God is generous, that that because of his generosity, he wants to love, he wants to give, he wants to forgive, he wants to help, not because we deserve it, but because it's who he is. Not because we measure up, but it's based on his generosity that he wants to do that. But that's all true. Jesus made it very clear, but that does not negate the fact that he is still just. And all of that does not take away the fact that we still want him to be just. What it does do, though, is it creates a dilemma for God. And the dilemma is this. He must be just. He must be just. Otherwise, we won't trust him. Otherwise, he can't be God. Otherwise, he can't be a good God. He must be just. He must see clearly. He must see right and wrong. He must act on right and wrong. Otherwise, we won't trust him. Otherwise, he can't be a good God. That's who he is. But he's also love. So how on earth does he resolve his justice and his love? The beautiful thing about Christianity is that the God Jesus revealed made a way for God to be both just perfectly, impartially just and loving. He made a way to take care of the required justice and punishment that was due every single person who had ever sinned, which includes you and me. In other words, he reveals a God that could impartially judge everyone and yet make a way for all of us to experience him as a father who is on our side and no longer judges us with impartiality. Christianity allows both. You see, if we simply, and this is a huge important statement, if we simply remain under God as judge, we have no hope. If we remain under God, simply remain under God as judge, we have no hope because none of us measures up. Because all of us fall short of his perfection. We all deserve punishment. If we only remain under God as judge, we have no hope. So the God Jesus revealed did something so incredible to solve this problem. He chose to take the punishment himself on himself, pay the price for it, but he also chose to invite us to become children of God. And this is huge. He invited us to become children of God, not just defendants under God. 
Because if we remain only under God as judge, we remain as defendants, liable for our punishment. But if we become children of God, we no longer are just defendants under God. I wanna show you a conversation where Jesus sort of points to these two ideas of this family, child-driven understanding of relating to God and this legal side. And it kind of comes together in a conversation that Jesus had with a religious leader named Nicodemus. It's in John chapter three, verse one. And in this conversation, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, this Pharisee. He says, now there there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And as a Pharisee, that was one of the primary religious leaders who people looked at and recognized that they did so much to live up to the religious standards of the day. I mean, they did that perfectly. And then it says that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he was not just any Pharisee. He was like the best of the best. In other words, he was a guy who stood 30 30 feet above everybody else. That's who he was. And any goodness that we have, he was probably better. And Jesus spoke to this guy. It was was amazing. Verse two, it says that he came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, which is a teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with them, which I think is interesting that even Jesus' opponents recognized something was happening that only, you know, no man could do this. Verse three, Jesus cuts to the chase and says to this very righteous, 30 feet above anybody else kind of guy, he says this, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one tells us righteous, 30 feet above everybody else guy, that unless you're born again, you will not even see the kingdom of God. Doesn't matter how righteous you are, how tall you stand, because you have a broken human nature, because you have sinned, because you fall short of who God is, no one will go to heaven unless they are born again. But what does he mean by born again? Nicodemus is confused. He goes, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. But Jesus was bringing in a different idea of birth. And in this, there's these two areas that we live under. Jesus is talking about a different kind of birth. The first time you were born, you were born as a child of your parents. The second time that he's talking about, yeah, you're born as a child of God. And he tells Nicodemus in verse five, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, and he says it again, no one will enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit, huh? But he explains, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. What he's saying is this, unless we become children of God, born as children of God, we will always remain under God as judge. This is huge. Unless we are born as children of God, we will always remain under God as judge and we will always be under the impartial judgment of a holy and just God. No one can enter the kingdom of heaven, he says, unless you are born and become a child of God. But if we're born into his family, if we become his children, we can experience him as a partial, he's partial to us, father, not as an impartial Judge. He continues explaining this in his conversations with Nicodemus, and then he, he sort of says how we become a child of God. In verse 16, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God, here Jesus says, for God 
so loved the world, everyone, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, whoever, it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what you struggle with, doesn't matter what you're struggling with, whoever believes, the point is not to change who you are, change what you're doing, the point is to believe. Whoever believes in him shall not perish kind of under the, the, the excruciating judgment, under the judgment of righteousness, but will have eternal life. And he's putting these two pictures in place. He's explaining that because of what Jesus did in dying on the cross, whoever believes in him, because he's a child of God, because she's a child of God, can live under him as father who's partial to them. But whoever does not accept that Jesus did for them, remains under the justice of an impartial judge. Look at how he clarifies this in the next verse, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn, which is a legal term. The Greek word for that is krino, and it means to judge a person to be guilty and liable to punishment. That's what condemn means, being judged to be guilty and liable to punishment. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't do that for that reason. He sent him so that through him, it's to save the world through him. So when he's saying save the world through him, he's saying this, that in and of ourselves, in our broken human nature, we don't measure up and are guilty and liable to justifiable punishment. But Jesus paid the price, and if we accept his payment for our punishment, we can be saved from that Punishment through him. He he continues, he says it in the next verse, verse 18. Again, whoever believes, not whoever changes, not whoever does right, not whoever fixes their sin, not whoever changes this and, and says sorry, whoever believes in him is not condemned. In other words, move somehow out from under being a defendant under a partial, righteous, holy, perfect judge. That condemnation is taken away. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. They remain under the impartial judgment of a righteous, holy, and perfect God stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. In other words, because God is just and we want him to be just, because we do fall short, none of us measure up, we are already justifiably condemned, found guilty and liable to punishment. But God loves us and doesn't want us to experience that condemnation. So he made a way. He took the punishment on the cross himself. But according to that verse, he will never force us to accept it. He will never push us. He will never say, you must accept it. He desperately wants all of us to accept it because he doesn't want us to remain under God as a judge. He wants us to experience God as father, but he will never force us to accept it. He ends the conversation later in verse 36, again by saying, whoever believes. I I wish I could emphasize that more. Whoever believes, but I've done this. Does it say anything about that? 
but I, I, I can't be forgiven for, no, 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 no. It's none. All of us fall short. Look at it from the space station. Not one person, even if you're one inch or 35 feet, it doesn't matter. You, it doesn't matter to God. Whatever you've done, you've dug a hole. You're 30 feet under the ground. Doesn't matter. Whoever, doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you struggle with. It's not in there. The point is, whoever believes in the Son, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The just, righteous wrath, and wrath sounds like this horrible, ah, word. What it basically means is God's necessary right action against wrong. Wrath, God's wrath, is God's necessary right action against wrong. And if we want him to be just, if we want him to impartially judge, we need him to have necessary right action against wrong. So what he says here is that the just, righteous wrath, the punishment that we all deserve, it's already been taken care of, but he will not force that on us. We need to accept it. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We are every one of us because we fall short we are under and we want God to be impartial we want him to be just we need him to be just but if he's just he must be just with us too so all of us are under the impartial justice of God that's where we start now he's died to make a way for us to become children of God he wants us to become a child not a defendant but we start there so so and the only way to get there is by believing in him. So, so it seems like, I mean, that's harsh. That feels harsh. That feels difficult. And I don't know if you're feeling this, but you might be saying, Justin, it feels like you're saying that the only way, only in believing in Jesus and what he did, and only in that are we moved from experience, experiencing God as a righteous and impartial judge who punishes sin to God as being a father who loves us unconditionally. Feels like what you're saying is that if we don't trust what Jesus did, then we remain under God's righteous and impartial judgment. Is that what you're saying, Justin? No, it's not what I'm saying, but it is what Jesus is saying. And he said it pretty clearly. And if he didn't say that, God would not be a just God. He would not. Jesus said very clearly in John 14, verse 6, this is his words, I am the way, I am, Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, and there's this, this picture of Father again, not judge. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he said that because he paid the full price for sin. It was all paid for so that justice, all justice, all punishment has already been fulfilled in him. And he says, if you trust me, you will have eternal life. This is why God has done everything possible for us to know what he's done. Not just to know him as an impartial judge, but to know him as an unconditionally loving father. He's done everything possible for that. And he desperately desires everyone to accept what he's done for them. 
Because he does not want us to have to pay for our own sin. It's already paid for, but he's not gonna force it on us. He does not want us to have to pay for our own sin. 1 Timothy 2 verse three says it so beautifully. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people, all people who look a certain way, no. All people who act, no. All people who've done, no. All people who haven't, no. This is good and acceptable inside of God, our Savior, who wants, desires, wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. He paid the price for all people. And again, in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. The reason he did it is because of his desperate love for the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, won't have to live under the righteous, justifiable, impartial judgment of a holy, perfect, righteous judge who judges impartially and all of us fall short. We will not have to perish, but we can have eternal life. That's such an important understanding to have that Jesus teaches. Let me see if I can summarize all of this. What I've said so far, what I've said today is this, that God is by necessity a holy, righteous, and impartial judge. And we need him to be that. We want him to be that. Because we cannot trust God if he's not a just God. We won't be able to. But if he's just, then he must be just with us, which leaves us, every one of us, under the impartial judgment of a perfect God. And since all of us are imperfect, every one of us, we all fall short and stand, as a result, we stand condemned, liable and guilty and liable to punishment, all of us. But... The beauty of what Jesus did, the beauty of what God put in place is that he made a way, he paid the penalty, he solved the problem of punishment. God solved the problem of punishment so that there is no longer a legal requirement for punishment. It is taken care of, but, and this is so important, he will never force it on us. His unconditional love requires no conditions. And that includes not a condition of acceptance. So as a result, we must be able to reject him and his offer of forgiveness. We must be able to, otherwise it's not unconditional. He always, he will always pursue and love us, but he has left the choice up to you and me. God desperately desires for you and I to accept his payment for our sin so that we are no longer responsible for it. God desperately required, desires for us to accept his payment of our sin so that we are no longer responsible for it. But he's left that choice up to you and to me. And the most important question that Christianity asks, the most important question that Jesus asks is do we accept it? Not have you changed, not do you look better, not have you done more, 
But do you simply accept what I have done? That's the culmination of everything that God has done. That's what he's done. Do we accept it? And if we accept what Christ did, (laughs) this is the beautiful thing. If we accept what Christ did, we will no longer be defendants under the authority of a judge. We will be children placed under the protection of a father. That's the beauty of what he did. We will no longer, if we accept what Christ did, his payment, accept what he's done, we will no longer be defendants under the authority of a righteous, impartial judge, but be children under the protection of a loving, unconditional father. It's interesting, if you think about the legal system in our world, if a judge is uh, ruling a case and the defendant walks in and it's his own son, what has to happen in that court case? The judge has to recuse himself, right? He's not allowed to judge. Why? Because this, they literally say he's unqualified to perform legal duties because of a potential conflict of interest or lack of impartiality. So when a child of a judge or a family member, that judge has to recuse himself. He can no longer impartially judge. Isn't it interesting that as an impartial judge, God, we need him to be just. But somehow he has made a way by paying the price and inviting us to be his children that he is no longer impartial. He becomes partial toward you. When we become his child, he's no longer impartial because his love for us has made him biased toward us in some way. And instead of impartial judgment, we can experience unconditional love. John 1 verse 12 puts this beautifully. <laughs> it says this, to all who did receive him, Christ, to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, if we accept what Christ did, we'll no longer be defendants under the authority of a judge. We'll be children under the protection of a father. And instead of impartial judgment, we can experience, we will experience unconditional love. And so, today and every single day, God stands pleading with you and with me, pleading with us to accept his gift of payment for punishment and his invitation to be his child. That's what he does. That's what Jesus made possible so that we can move from being and experiencing God as an impartial judge to experiencing God as an unconditionally loving father. He loves you. That doesn't change, but we can either accept it or reject it. We can take it or not. And when we accept it, we suddenly, some miraculous thing happens inside of us when now all of our sin is paid for. Jesus already paid for it, but it is applied to us. And suddenly, we're no longer guilty. Without it, there's no hope of that guilt. We fall so far short. He's impartial. We want him to be impartial. So we need him to be just. And when we allow what Christ has done to be applied to us, justice is taken care of. And suddenly, this miracle happens where now I am a a son, a daughter of a, a God who's partial toward me, not an impartial judge. So that we don't have to be defendants under that impartial judge, but we can be children 
under an unconditionally loving God. So to end, here's what I wanna do, and we don't do this often, but we wanted to give you an opportunity. If you've been listening to these ideas and the God Jesus knows, and you're going, wow, I never knew that. Or maybe you've been seeing, oh my gosh, I do fall short of this perfect God, and there's no hope if, I, if it's up to me. But perhaps you're at the place where faith has started to stir in you. You're starting to go, I think I wanna trust him. I think I wanna believe. You're at that place and perhaps you haven't said it out loud. I wanna give you an opportunity today. Again, we don't do this often, but I wanna give you an opportunity to tell him, I trust you. I believe in you. Whoever believes, I believe in you. And allow his payment for your sin and guilt to be taken care of and to become a child of God. The way we're gonna do this is we're gonna have the band sing a song that has these beautiful words that if you're at the place where you wanna express your trust in Jesus for what he's done, I want you to use these words of the song as a prayer and say this to God. And as you do, as you do, you can know this. He said, whoever believes. And as you place your faith, as you believe in what he's done, everything all justice, all punishment, the problem of punishment is taken care of. And you move from being under a impartial judge to into the family of an unconditionally loving father. So if that's you, I'd love for you to use these words to pray this prayer and tell God that you trust in Christ and what he has done for you. Let me pray for us. Father, I am so grateful. Oh my gosh. Father, I know me, and I know how far short I fall, and I know how sometimes I wanna pretend and think that I'm better than others and don't deserve righteous justice, but I do, I do, I know that, I know that about me, and that none of us, none of us are above anybody else in your perspective. We fall so far short, but God, thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your only son, that there is a way that righteousness and justice can be fulfilled and love can shine. God, thank you. Thank you that you've moved me from being under the, as a defendant under a righteous, impartial judgment to being a son of a father who loves me. Thank you and making a way for me to accept that. Thank you. And Father, I pray today for anyone who's at that place, who's understanding their need and that the fact that they don't measure up. But you've said, I've taken care of it. Nobody measures up, but I love you and you can be my child. I pray that you help us express that faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.
was the 